This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussions of murder and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The children were soundly asleep. They hadn't heard the man enter the room. They hadn't felt his shadow pass over them. He waited to hear if anyone else in the house stirred. But no, it was quiet. He alone commanded this small suburban home now. It gave him a sense of power, of comfort, and of control. He could still make things right. It wasn't too late. It could all be rectified in the eyes of his Lord and Savior. David Hendricks knelt down by the bed of the young girl and brushed the hair out of his daughter's face. He wanted to see her one last time before the lives of his family changed forever. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a murder that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? This week, we explore the tragic life of David Hendricks, a father and deeply religious man. He started a family with a loving wife at a young age, only to find his moral compass severely challenged when he found success in the world of business. Lies, guilt, and shame would spiral out of control, and the Hendricks family would pay the ultimate price. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com merch for more information. In 1954, the Hendricks family of Oak Park, Illinois, arrived at Sunday service with the newborn, David James Hendricks. The Hendricks clan belonged to the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, a fundamentalist Protestant sect with strict evangelical tendencies. While the backbone of the Brethren remains the Holy Bible, they hold themselves to dedicated and austere levels of conduct. For example, They tend to meet more often than just Sundays, although their Sunday services always last the longest, sometimes all day. Instead of an official authority at the head of the church, worshipers meet in smaller, more communal groups where a council of elder, male members, control the proceedings. Women are not allowed to speak. During David's childhood, His parents restricted access to all forms of media, such as television and radio. This was the same for all children within the Brethren religion. Outside influence was seen as impure and distracting. The second eldest of seven children, David was encouraged to be a polite and rule-following example for his siblings. Neighbors described him as very serious-minded and always saw his family as extremely close-knit. This was the Brethren way, and David knew no other form of life. David matured intellectually at an accelerated rate and jumped an entire year above the rest of his class when he transitioned into high school. He also excelled at sports and piano, but he was never a free-spirited child. His disciplined religious upbringing left a mark on his overall psychology. Before I continue with David's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. Dr. Valerie Tarico, who studies the psychology of religion, said the childhood consumption of religion shapes the very foundations of the unconscious mind, such as the metaphors, intuitions, and emotions that operate before a child even has a chance at conscious thought. This has a powerful and lasting effect on a developing mind, A child's entire conception of morality and reality becomes filtered through the doctrine of the religion itself. Dr. Tarico also described the connection between religion and medication. The purveyors of religion often liken the positive effects of their belief structure to the powerful results of medicine against disease. They construct this analogy as if it somehow, magically, has no risks, But in reality, when a medicine is powerful, it usually has the potential to be toxic as well. This toxicity, when it comes to strict evangelical Christianity, often arises in the form of an authoritarian trust in higher male leadership, a constant undercurrent of fear of sin and an isolation from other cultures and belief systems. Within the Brethren Church, David Hendricks was instilled with the conviction that humanity is inherently depraved and could only be saved through the love of God. But this love must be earned through intense sacrifice. Like many children raised within strict religions, David was cut off from elements of the outside world. 
so he appeared to be another polite religious boy, and any inner struggles went unseen. Romance and love, of course, also fell under the purview of the church. If one was to marry as a brethren, one married within the religion. This undoubtedly stunted many chances at early social development, as brethren kids were not allowed to date and were constantly supervised by parents when with others of the opposite sex. In 1969, when David was 15 years old, he and his family stumbled into just such a mediated encounter. In Des Moines, Iowa, the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church held a gathered Bible conference. Worshippers from all over the Midwest congregated in one place, including one devout family of nine called the Palmers from Peoria. 16-year-old Susan Palmer pulled two of her siblings apart and shushed them. They needed to take their seats. As one of the older siblings, Susan knew her place within the family structure and the responsibilities associated. She wasn't a leader, no. That, of course, was the duty of her father, Charles. But she was a caretaker and a pacifier of rebel wills. Susan didn't need to raise her voice to keep her siblings under control. They quieted down, and the Palmers took their seats like everyone else before the day's first sermon began. She looked to her right and caught sight of her parents conferring with the parents of the family that sat next to them. But what really captured her attention was a different face. The serious young man next to those parents. For just a moment, they locked eyes. Susan didn't know what to do. Her heart fluttered in her chest. She felt drawn to the young man, but she didn't move a muscle. She couldn't. She could only put her faith in God and hope. Susan looked away, but she made a prayer that she'd get the chance to speak with that young man and learn his name. Susan's prayer was answered. After the service, her parents introduced their children to the Hendricks family from Oak Park, not very far from Peoria at all. David and Susan weren't personally introduced, but even their parents could detect a potential match between the two. In 1970, following Susan's junior year of high school, the Palmers allowed their daughter to move in with the Hendricks family in Oak Park so she could take a job at Bible Truth Publishers. She would study for her GED in the evenings. Her days were now given over fully to the church. In the summer of 1970, David decided to take on a seasonal job at the publishers too. His parents smiled each morning as they watched David and Susan leave for work together. The puritanical idea of industrious young people. By the end of the summer, David went back to finish his senior year of high school, while Susan stayed on at the publishing firm. But these young people had a secret. They had promised one another they would get married. They swore that they would wait to be married until David could fully financially support a family. So, he increased his academic workload and after just a year at Northwestern Medical School, earned a degree in prosthetics in 1973. Later that summer, when David was just 19 and Susan nearly 20, the two openly announced their love and were wed. For the brethren, 
such a young marriage wasn't unusual at all. But research has indicated that marrying young may negatively affect future happiness. The survival rates of younger marriages are much lower than those of couples who marry from their mid-twenties onward. Of course, for worshipers in this church, divorce was never considered an option. David and Susan were in it for the long haul, and they believed themselves more than capable, just as they had been capable of everything else in their young lives, thanks to the blessings of their family and their church. Their young psychology had been molded to point them always toward the family. It was the ultimate goal of moral and spiritual success in life. Since both young people were intelligent overachievers, starting a family at their age would not be a problem. By 1974, 20-year-old David and 21-year-old Susan had their first child. Their ideal life was quickly moving forward. However, Within a decade, this image would be shattered. This new branch of the Hendricks family would no longer exist, and only one of them would be left alive. When we return, we'll see how a career success puts David into conflict with his strong moral code, and how this psychological shift sets a disastrous chain of events in motion. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And now, back to the story. In 1974... 20-year-old David Hendricks and his wife, 21-year-old Susan, welcomed their first child into their home in Bloomington, Illinois. They named their little girl Rebecca, but called her Becky. Susan Hendricks' mother, Nadine, later said that Becky quickly became quite a perfectionist, just like her mother. Just as Susan had been a role model for her siblings, Becky would be an example for the Hendricks' children to follow. Next was Grace, born in 1976, who would laugh from sunup to sundown. She was empathetic from a young age, often comforting her siblings when they needed. Then Benji came in 1978. Even when he could barely stand, he loved playing with his t-ball set. Nadine and Susan both thought he was a spitting image of David. They saw it in his smile, in his quiet nature, and in his early maturity. From the age of four, Benji greeted everyone he met the same way David did, with a firm handshake. The Hendricks family seemed almost idealistic. Even as David's career in prosthetics started to take off, 
they still kept up a rigid routine. They went to church at least twice a week. The children were as pious as their parents and knew that all blessings came from above. David gave his children the same psychological and moral foundation he himself had received. Without even realizing it, he propagated the patriarchal mindset that had shaped his entire perspective through his young life. Psychological research into patriarchy has shown that the system depends on two things, separation and control. Punishment for the children was always decided by David. All important family decisions arrived through him. Just as Susan could not speak out at church, she could not speak out at home. In this way, David created a barrier between Susan and her children and vice versa. He was the mediating factor between both sides and could therefore control perception on either end. Even if this was unconscious, he asserted control by creating an atmosphere of moral fear. The institution of their church leaked into the personal, polluting the waters and created an unequal partnership between Susan and David. However, Susan wasn't complaining. Every night she wrote in her diary, thanking God for David and what he brought to their family. He seemed so dedicated to their happiness. David took Susan out for nice dinners and came home from work with small, thoughtful gifts. He set aside time to take their growing family on road trips around America. And for one of their wedding anniversaries, David even flew Susan to England, a place she had always wanted to see firsthand. Although their lives were governed by the strict guidelines of the Plymouth Brethren, David made sure that there was still vibrancy in their life together. David's and Susan's parents looked at their children's family and saw the ideal. Everyone in the Hendrix orbit saw this as a reflection of God's will, a sign that they were living morally and correctly. But what really fueled these adventures was something a bit further from the pulpit. It was David's booming success with his own small business. After earning his degree in prosthetics, David had been working for other people, but something about this rubbed him the wrong way. He had been brought up outside of everyday capitalist society. The brethren stood apart. They followed a puritanical code to improve the world through their own personal actions. David started researching prosthetics in the first place because he saw a higher purpose in medical devices that could help people. But now he spent so much time away from his growing family, leasing his services out to people and medical practices that were inscrutable and dense with bureaucracy. He could not see the results of his actions. This frustrated him immensely. So he took things back into his own hands in 1978, following the birth of Benji. Like any good entrepreneur worth his salt, he opened up his garage and went to work. He had the equipment, he had the knowledge, and he had the skills. So he spent hours locked away, designing and developing his own orthotic brace. He called it the Cruciform Anterior Spinal Hyperextension Orthosis, or CASH Orthosis for short. Ironically, the four-point device ended up shaped like a cross. It wrapped around the body to restrict overflexing and stabilize an injured spine. 
It could be worn for hours, even during showers or other daily activities. Within a year, David was selling his device across the country. With this medical trademark in place, David retired from practice entirely and devoted himself to marketing and producing the cash brace. In other words, David Hendricks became a salesman and a very good one. Against all odds, by 1983, the 29-year-old father was a millionaire. This material wealth didn't change day-to-day -day life for the Hendricks family too much. They still didn't own any up-to-date technology or acquire any fancy cars, but Susan and the kids were comfortable and content. However, something had changed for David. Success in business had caused a mutation, although even he didn't recognize it as the cause. A dissonance reverberated through his formally secure perspective. What was once solid became liquid and potentially unstable. Researchers from Harvard have conducted studies that link wealth and even thoughts of wealth to immoral decision-making. Acquiring money or planning to acquire money strips away a lot of surface-level illusions from life. A new cold focus enters the equation. Money means success. Success means happiness. For David, this challenged everything he knew growing up. The Hendricks family had always lived simply. They worked to support the church. The church supplied happiness. There was no outside force. In a way, there was no outside world. David thought that starting his own business would return him to this simple structure. Instead, he had a runaway success on his hands. This rocketed him even further away from his past and in a way, from the church. Of course, he didn't share any of these feelings with Susan. She was proud of his success in business and often told him so. She assured him that he was doing the right thing for their family and never thought that the amount of money they had, richer or poorer, would change the way they lived or raise their children. For his entire life, David had lived by a strict set of rules. He had never once wavered. He had never once failed. And God had rewarded him. But their traditional family structure and their traditional relationship had a blind spot. The isolation caused by patriarchy affects men in addition to women. Despite his feelings of love towards Susan, he felt separate from her. He couldn't confide any of his insecurities or fears, just as the patriarchal structure of his family alienated his wife and children from one another. It also trapped David. He was supposed to always know the right decision, he was supposed to be strong and assured through his religious conviction. If he was a righteous man, there was no need for discussion or vulnerability. But in turn, all of his negative thoughts metastasized inside him. Doctors Arkin and Chang, Ohio State University psychologist, found links between people who doubt themselves and the attractiveness of materialistic values. A crisis of faith in any form can lead a person to fill that hole with material things. In turn, this perpetuates a tragic cycle. People lose their importance because their value isn't material. 
Materialism leads to lower relationship satisfaction and a greater depth of alienation. Paradoxically, extremely rich people actually suffer from depression more than those less wealthy. Psychologist Eric Erickson believes that meaning in life is built around the mastery of different skills and values as someone ages. In adolescence, creating a sense of identity is the key challenge. In young adulthood, the primary goal is to forge intimate bonds with others. In David's life so far, the Plymouth Brethren and his wife Susan had helped him achieve such mastery, but in adulthood, the most significant goal becomes what Erickson calls generative. At this stage, we want to pass on benefits to those who follow us, be it children or other young people. David now faced that gauntlet. He needed to find meaning in his family, or he risked losing himself altogether. Which is why he felt so conflicted in 1983 when a professional model walked into his cash offices to help him with a new advertising campaign. David was taken aback. She smiled at him and David stumbled as he stood up to greet her. She was beautiful. Lost in thought, he forgot to offer his hand, so she stuck hers out first and introduced herself. <laughs> David went red in the face. He knew he was embarrassing himself. He was overly used to the subservient behavior of brethren women. He wasn't used to a woman taking the lead like this. He was also embarrassed in a professional capacity. After all, he was the boss here, wasn't he? He was the one who had called her. David quickly escorted her into his back office and dug out his display version of the cash brace. The model seemed impressed when he told her that he had built it based on his own design. David tried to repress it, but he couldn't deny the pride he took in her reaction. He approached the model with a brace, and she took off her jacket at his instruction. She wore a simple shirt underneath. David nervously laughed as he fit the brace around the model's body. He tightened the clasp and couldn't help but notice how snugly it fit. David didn't notice any potential discomfort on her end. As he fit his creation around her, he couldn't help but feel the warmth emanating from her body. This was certainly an unusual occurrence in his life. The only woman he had ever really been this close to was Susan. But this woman wasn't Susan. She didn't act like Susan. She didn't feel like Susan. David shook those thoughts from his mind and stepped away. Guilty pangs radiated through his body as he unboxed a camera and hooked it onto a tripod. As David gazed through the camera lens at the model, he realized he hadn't even taken a good look at her before now. He couldn't bring himself to when they stood face to face, but through the lens, David could admire her in a more objective way. He felt shielded. He felt like he was back in control. When the photo shoot ended and the model left, David felt completely flustered. He felt like he had just done something wrong. He reminded himself that this was just a marketing campaign. He had many more models to schedule for similar photo shoots, yet there remained a darkness in the back of his mind. 
Despite the excuses he told himself, he knew what he had just felt. It was temptation. It was a biblical sin. And he had enjoyed it. When we return, the rupture between David and his family becomes irreparable. This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. And now, back to the story. November 7th, 1983, started out like an average day. The 29-year-old David and 30-year-old Susan worked together to hustle the Hendrix kids through their daily routine. Later that night, Susan would head to a baby shower with her sister in a nearby town. That meant David would be sole guardian. It was his last night in town before hitting the road for a business trip, selling his wares to different hospitals around the Midwest. As Susan prepared for her evening away, she thought about how nice it would be for David to get some personal time with the kids. He had been working overtime a lot in the wake of his new marketing campaign. She had also noticed changes in her husband, who seemed so open to her in most ways, but kept a small part of himself hidden. Externally, this was represented in his appearance. David's wardrobe had changed over the last few months. He seemed to be aiming for a less austere look, he had recently bought a motorcycle and even wore a motorcycle jacket as he rode. Susan, of course, didn't begrudge him these changes. She just wanted him to be happy. He also seemed to be eating healthier as he had lost a lot of weight. She knew this was all probably just due to his business's increasing success. David needed to display his success in order to keep selling. Yet something still tugged at the back of her mind. Their late-night talks had dwindled. David often came to bed long after she fell asleep. He seemed quiet during mealtimes and reserved at church. That was the most unusual aspect of his new behavior. The church had always been David's sanctuary, but she felt he now struggled with something whenever he stepped inside their house of worship. She wanted to reach out to him. She wanted to help him reconnect with whatever it was he had lost. She wanted to be there for her husband in a way only a loving partner can be. The Hendrix's marriage always came second to their religion. If they were living correctly, then shouldn't the relationship take care of itself? The debate over the potential for female subordination in heterosexual marriage is a complex and fraught subject. This is especially true now as traditional roles are constantly in flux. A 2015 seminar conducted by female psychologists, sociologists, and anthropologists from American universities spanned an entire week as they debated back and forth over the socialization of patriarchy. Conference co-chairs Adriana Monago and Holly Matthews said their purpose was to investigate how patriarchy works psychologically 
and to probe the reasons why women sometimes adhere or accommodate to ideologies that oppress or disenfranchise them, while other times they resist or subvert them. One reoccurring theme was that societal institutions generationally enforce these structures under the name of tradition. For those amongst the Plymouth Brethren in 1973, those traditions were foundational and not to be disturbed. Concerned researchers have conducted studies that point toward extreme religion posing more psychological risks to women than men. The Old Testament, after all, does have patriarchal roots, and the Bible is not to be questioned. As we have examined earlier, subjugation is a key psychological feature in both strict religious doctrine and patriarchal marriage roles. Returning to psychologist Dr. Valerie Tarico, she believes a lot of this damage can be subtle and mostly unacknowledged. Women suffer from lower self-esteem, less independence and confidence, and abandoned goals. Susan Hendricks was a strong woman. She was a supportive mother. She was a loving wife. But for many problems in her life, she had been taught self-blame. If her husband was pulling away, the problem most likely arose from her end, not his. If she wanted to help him, she needed to work on herself. And for Susan, the only resource for self-help in her life was religion. It was a cycle that trapped her thinking and halted any progress in her investigation of her own husband's deepest fears and troubles. So after David returned from the office, and spent some time alone working on his motorcycle, Susan left for the baby shower with her sister. David asked the kids if they were hungry. In a rare treat, David took Becky, Grace, and Benji out to Chuck E. Cheese for dinner. After letting them play a few games around the play space, he drove them to the local bookmobile. This was a Hendrix family ritual and one of the chance moments when the parents let the kids interact with media outside of the Plymouth Brethren. The kids excitedly chose some new books, and David took them home. David sent the kids up to their bedrooms around 9.30 that evening. He waited for Susan to return from the baby shower. When she got back, David sat on the bed as Susan carried out her nightly routine. She brushed her teeth and put on her pajamas, Susan took her husband's hand. She looked into his eyes. Perhaps she was preparing to finally break the strange emotional silence between them. David gazed back at her with that same honest look he had always given her. But before anything of substance passed between them, the kids called out from their bedroom. Susan got ready to get up, but David shook his head. He would take care of them tonight. He wanted her to get some sleep. He kissed his wife and told her he would see her when he returned from this trip. Susan laid down and drifted off to sleep, happily thinking about how she and the kids would visit her sister tomorrow night for dinner. So around 11 o'clock on November 7th, David walked out of their shared bedroom and went to tuck in his children. Less than 12 hours later, David Hendricks was on the road. He stopped at a motel off the freeway in Madison, Wisconsin. By 1 p.m., David had called home over 10 times to no response. 
he continued on his business trip and stopped at a few more hospitals to pitch the cash brace. At 5.30 p.m., he called Susan's sister, Mary Ann, and received troubling news. Susan and the kids never showed up for dinner. Around 6, David reached his neighbor, Karen Kramer. She felt the fear quaking through the line as he asked her to check on his house. When Karen got back to him, she told him there was no answer despite repeated tries. All the lights were off. It didn't seem anyone was home. On the other end, Karen only heard silence and David's anxious breath. She suggested he call a local police dispatcher, so he did. And then, David Hendricks rushed home in apparent panic. Bloomington PD received another call from Susan's mother, Nadine, around 9.45 p.m. They sent Officer Michael Hibbins and Detective Michael O'Brien over to check on the house. Upon inspection, the police found the patio door unlocked. That was enough cause to investigate further. At 11 p.m., just over 24 hours after he had left, David Hendricks made it back home. Hibbins and O'Brien were there to meet him on the front lawn. David saw his family members, Nate and Jerry, emerge from the shadows. Karen Kramer watched from her neighboring front porch, arms crossed, tears in her eyes. David saw the officers' mouths moving. Family. Gone. Violent. David collapsed to his knees. His family was dead. His wife. His children. All of them. They were gone. What did David say in response? His eyes looked up to the sky. He closed them, sighed and said, They're with the Lord now. For more information on this story, amongst the many sources we used, we found Reasonable Doubt, a true story of lust and murder in the American heartland by Steve Vogel, extremely helpful to our research. Thanks again for tuning in to Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with our next episode on David Hendricks and the death of his innocent family. As the police investigate, they untangle a web of guilt and religious shame that paints David as the prime suspect. But could a loving father truly commit a crime so heinous? You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Jack Bentel. I'm Lainey Hobbs.